At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, and I appreciate you tuning in. So glad to have Scott Andrew Selby with me today. He's the author of a number of great books, including The Axeman Conspiracy, The Nazi Plan for a Fourth Reich, and How the Army Defeated It, and co-author of Flawless, The Largest Diamond Heist in History. But the book we're discussing today is called A Serial Killer in Nazi Berlin, the chilling true story of the S-Bahn murders. Thanks again for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. So where did you first hear about this story and what motivated you to write a book about it? That's a great question. It's uh, really hard with these sort of true stories to figure out uh, how to find them. There's not a brute force method to do it. You just have to kind of stumble upon something. And I know what I'm looking for. I'm always looking for an untold story in an interesting time in an interesting part of the world. And so one day I was reading this amazing book by Philip Kerr. It's part of the Burning Gunther series, I believe it's referred to. Uh, the book was called Prague, Prague Fatale. And in passing, they mention this crime, that there's this serial killer and the Nazis are trying to catch him and all these crazy lengths they're going to, including having cross-dressing detectives on the trains trying to catch this person and these blackout conditions. And it just sounded amazing. And I know that the author really bases his stuff on real things. So I went ahead and Googled it and was shocked to find out that uh, the S-Bahn killer was all too real and that there was nothing in English about it, maybe uh, a few pages in one history book. So that was a really exciting development for me. Absolutely. So so let's start with uh, the Berlin blackout. Can Can you explain what the Berlin blackout was? 
Sure. It's uh, a little bit similar to what some of us know about what happened in London during the bombing. So the idea was in World War II with aerial warfare, it was really important that cities be able to conceal all their sources of light. So the technology was enough that you could have bombers up in the air, but the tech wasn't good enough to be able to spot cities. Obviously, it was way before GPS or satellites or all sorts of things. So basically, bombers could easily miss a target, even the target the size of Berlin, if it was dark out and there were no light sources down there. So one thing the Nazis were certainly good at was being organized, and they also knew that they were going to start the war. So they intended on September 1st, 1939, to attack Poland. So in the months leading up to that, they got ready. They did all these practice drills where they had people in Berlin, you know, turn up everything at night, uh, install certain curtains, uh, paint fluorescent lights, uh, phosphorescent lights and certain things. And they did all these practice drills with some people would pretend that they were hit and uh, some people would be rescuers. So they were ready for when the war began. And what's relevant to this story is even before the blackout itself officially began, they turned off all the street lights. So certain parts of the city were already quite dark. And they had these really extensive regulations that explained how everything worked. So they had sort of rules for private spaces. And then they had also public issues like transportation, signage, all those things. And these all came come into play in our, in our story. In terms of what people would do, it would be up to the individuals to make sure no light came out of their house. And if you had a house or a business and the light seeped out, there would be severe repercussions. And it was an eerie time to walk around at night because, for instance, cars would have um, this sort of white paint on them so you could spot them, but their head, headlights would be hooded. So there should be a little bit of light coming out. And uh, it was there were many accidents. It was a pretty intense time at night. Also, some people walking around and were little phosphorescent pins so you could just sort of see that bobbing along as you go and posters everywhere warned people there was uh my favorite has uh has one that says uh light equals death uh there's where there's a skeleton throwing a uh, bomb down at a slightly lit house so i'd like to ask you about paul ogerzo what was his background and how did he grow up he had a rough life right from the start. He was born as the illegitimate child of a servant on a farm. Uh, he didn't know his father at all. Uh, we don't know who his father was, and it was almost in his birth certificate. At the age of 12, he was adopted by a man with the name of Yuan Gorzo, so that's how he got the last name. His Paul's entire life, he was a manual laborer. So he, as a kid, he was working on a farm. As an adult, he was working at a steel mill. And then he moved to Berlin, and he was able to start working at the National Railroad Company. Uh, what, was he was he treated okay by his his family? Did he did he grow up with a relatively normal childhood for for someone in his circumstances? That's a great question about his childhood, and unfortunately, that's lost to history. Normally, with these serial killers, there's all sorts of issues that emerge in childhood, uh, including the you know triad of um, 
the dark triad of bedwetting, fire starting, killing animals. But we really don't know. We could presume just from those details that he had it rough. And he was a very rough person later in life. So we don't really have any way of knowing exactly what things happened during his childhood. And what's also interesting is the Nazis had zip interest in that. Their their theories of criminality didn't encompass uh, childhood activities. Um, they believed that these things were innate. You were born with them. And so if this were modern American times and he'd been caught for these sort of crimes, that would be the first thing they would get into. You know, what happened to you as a kid? Were you abused? This and that to try to at some level explain his behavior and perhaps give him a little bit of a, a pass. Um, whereas the Nazis, that's not how they viewed crime at all. They could care less if he'd been beaten or anything else. So he works regular jobs, and in 1932, decides to join the Nazi party. Yes, that is correct. And so this was about a year before the Nazi party gained power in Germany. And this is really important because that meant that he had a relatively low party number and it gave him a bit of status in the Reich. So it meant he was a true believer. Everybody who joined after 33, it helped your career. But if you joined in 32, it hurt your career. And he, yeah, he was a believer. He, he signed straight up and he joined the SA, the brown shirts, which was the part that he fit right in with. And where was he employed during this time? Can you talk a little bit about how he supported himself? Yes. So uh, since he'd moved to Berlin, he'd been employed by the German National Railroad Company, the Reichsbahn, and he'd been working there for a long time. And he started uh, as a manual laborer, laying railroad track and eventually doing turnpike maintenance. And at the time that he started there doing track, it was a really good job because it was still the Great Depression. And it was just hard to get any kind of work. And his background meant that he could work hard. And his party background meant that he could keep that job as the Nazis took over. By the time of 1940, he was working as what's known as an auxiliary signalman at the berlin Rommelsburg S-Bahn station. So the S-Bahn was the overground commuter train for Berlin. And it's part of the National Railroad Company. It's a little bit confusing, but in Berlin, there's two parts to the rapid transit system. So the overground part is the S-Bahn, which is owned by the National Railroad Company. And there's an underground part called the U-Bahn, which is owned by a different entity. And But they still connect up with each other and work together. So it's sort of as if... Um, if New York City had divided its subway system into the parts that are underground, like the L train, and the parts that are overground, like the JMZ. So let's talk about how he begins his criminal career. He actually starts by frightening women. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So this is a classic and well-documented case of escalation. So with all sorts of criminal activity, it's incredibly common, standard even, that people start off very, very small and slowly work their way up. And in his case, he was doing that without any awareness even of what his uh, end desires, goals might be. He only learned those as he went along. 
So even though the war had yet to begin, the conditions there were already quite dark with all public lighting having been turned off. So he lived in an area that's known as a garden colony. And what this is, is it's an area in the heart of Berlin. So you're in the heart of the city, but you get to replicate the outdoors, the countryside. And you do this through garden allotments. And it's quite common throughout Northern Europe. And the idea is each person can still be a city dweller, have a job, all those things, but they have a place to go with their own little plot of land. And so they can grow flowers, plants. During wartime, they're growing fruits and vegetables. And most of these just have little structures where people can keep their gardening equipment and stuff to just enjoy the day. It's very common that these places allow the residents to stay during the summer. Um, this garden colony was a bit unusual in that people were allowed to stay year-round. And Paul didn't live inside the garden colony exactly itself. He lived just outside it. So his commute to work, his going from the S-Bahn station closest to his house to his the apartment building that he lived in, took him right through this garden area every single day and every single night. And he would ride this bike at night that had a little light on it. The light was powered by the movement of the bicycle. And he started to use that to scare women. And so it would be late at night. He'd be coming to or from work. And he would hide. And he would see some woman walking in the dark alone, already feeling a little bit nervous. And he would shout something at them or shine a flashlight or the light from his bike at them and just scare them. And he got a thrill out of that, but he kept escalating. So from there, he was yelling really specific obscenities, threats, and then he was grabbing and punching women. And eventually he ultimately escalated to sexually assaulting them. How long did it take from the point where he started scaring women to to his getting the courage to actually do more than that? I mean, was that a was that a process that took a long time or did he make that leap in a relatively short amount of time? It was a leap in a relatively short amount of time. This was a matter of a couple of months, the maybe even less. But the thing about that leap is it's not so much about the passage of time with escalation. It's a matter of the quantity of incidents. So as each, he was able to do this repeatedly in a single evening. And the more that he did this, the more that he wanted to push it and do more. So that's why it really quickly escalated. So who were these women that he was preying on? So now this ties into the war. Every part about this story ties into the war, even though none of this book takes place on the actual front. That's what's so interesting about this little bit of history. So what's happening now at this time in, let's say, roughly 1940, is the men are all off. The men are fighting. The men have been... Um, They've all been drafted. They've all been taken out of the city. A few loyal party members like uh, Paul are left behind that have work to do in the city that needs to be done. And this leaves a huge labor shortage at the very time that the German war machine needs as much product as they can get. They need guns. They need uh, all sorts of stuff to keep the war afloat. 
And so this means that uh, good Aryan German housewives and young women are no longer simply staying at home the way that Nazi ideology suggests they should, but just like our Rosie the Riveter are out in the factories working. And these factories are working around the clock 24-7. They have special dispensations with the blackout regulations to be able to have lighting and work and special notifications they find out a bit earlier than anybody else if an air raid's coming. And these women are coming to and fro using the S-Bahn, the public transportation. At this point, very few people are driving cars. It's dangerous with the blackout, and also you need to be able to have ration tickets for gasoline, which almost nobody does. So this gives Paul an opportunity. So normally there wouldn't be a whole bunch of uh, women tired traveling to and from the subway station by themselves at, you know, three in the morning on a Tuesday. But now they are, and they're coming home. It's been a long day of work. They're all by themselves. They're tired, and they're just trying to get home. And these are the people that he's preying upon. So what is his MO? What is his strategy for approaching these women? So Paul Agorzo moves through a couple of MOs through his shall we say, career as a serial killer and attacker, which is highly unusual. The first one is in this garden area where he lies in wait. He listens very carefully, looks as best he can in the near-dark conditions to see that a woman is alone and nobody else seems to be around there. And so, yeah, at first he escalates with just trying to scare that woman, eventually punching her. And then he escalates all the way up to jumping out and quickly trying to incapacitate a woman by punching her really hard or strangling her or otherwise knocking her to the ground and then trying to sexually assault her. And at first he's, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, not very good at this. So it takes a lot of work for him to be able to do this quickly without anybody putting up the screen or anything of that sort. And eventually he is, well, successfully attacking women in this area. And at one night, he's now confident. He's listening very carefully, looking as best he can. He thinks it's yet another woman walking home alone after a long night at work. And he comes right on out and tries to uh, attack her. And she screams. And at this point, he's pretty comfortable with that because he's learned that unless somebody's buried nearby in this garden area, they're not going to hear anything. And what Paul had not realized was that this woman's husband and brother-in-law were nearby. They'd simply been walking a little bit behind her. And they were horrified to hear yelling for help. And they rushed to the scene. The husband and brother-in-law violently grabbed him and yanked him off his victim. And they began to pummel him. And they just beat him mercilessly. Uh, so much so that they thought that he might be dead. At which point they yelled that if he were still alive and they'd turn him over to the police and, you know, the police would finish the job for them. Uh, however, he was able to get away, to sort of crawl away and then hide, taking advantage of the fact that this is a garden area. There's bushes everywhere. There's trees everywhere. It's pitch black. And also he knows this area incredibly well because he's been prowling it for a long time. So he did manage 
to get away, but just barely. And he takes a little break after this, right? Yes. So after this, he's concerned because he is really scared. This is this is the fear that's holding him back, the fear of being caught, um, which is a really normal fear. And uh, that shows that he's actually not basically that he's sane because he he knows that if the Nazis catch him, they will kill him. And he's confused. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to do this again without ever how to do this again and still be certain that there's not somebody else walking, you know, a couple minutes behind that will get will get him. And eventually it occurs to him that there's an entirely different MO available to him, a different area in which to attack women and a different way in which to attack them in which he feels safe and he knows just as well as a garden area. And the beauty of this is he realizes that he won't get caught. I'd like to take a quick break from the narrative and and ask you about his physical appearance, because this is important in the story. Can, Can you explain what he looks like and how women react to him when they see him? So Paul had a just a terrible appearance. He'd had a very rough childhood. He very much looked like the rough thug that he was. His nose had been broken and never quite reset. So it looked off, basically. And if you were to sit there and just imagine, just call central casting for a movie and say, we want a guy who looks like a thug. He's been through it all. He's the guy you would send. So his physical appearance would be very offsetting to women. But he did have something that counteracted that, which is that he was wearing a uniform. He had a a National Railroad uniform as an S-Bahn employee. And it was a uniform that looked very, very similar to uh, many other important uniforms. It looked very similar to the SS uniform in some ways, other than the uh, cap and the death skull stuff. And the thing about Germany, especially at that time under the Nazis, was that people in general, good Aryans who had nothing to fear from the state, trusted the state and they trusted people in uniforms and people who were doing their jobs. And that gave him a lot of power to make women feel comfortable and safe around him. And this is part of what led him to his whole new way of attacking which was on the S-Bahn, because while he's on the S-Bahn, he knows exactly how long it is between each station. He knows which train compartments will have very few people. He's able to approach women, and not only does he not scare them, but he reassures them and makes them feel safe. What was it about the S-Bahn that made it such a fertile hunting ground for him? That's a really great way to put it. It was a fertile hunting ground. And not simply that, it it wasn't simply that there was a target-rich environment, as he saw it. Of course, these are living, breathing human beings. But that it was one that he could control, that he knew, that he felt safe, and that other people would perceive him as being safe. And not only not being a threat, but actually adding to their feeling of safety because of his his uniform and his working there and belonging there. And as for the S-Bahn itself, with the blackout conditions, remember this is an above-ground train, which means that it's very important for them 
to keep any and all light from seeping out into the cityscape. So this means the stations where passengers are waiting are pitch black. And this also means that the train itself, when you're inside a compartment, it's very, very, very dark. So there still is some lighting, but it's it's just like you would expect maybe if you were watching like a 1930s noir movie. It's basically the perfect lighting for a killer to attack. Just enough for him to see his victim, see that there's not anybody else on this compartment, um, be able to make his way around. But not so much that if anybody does manage to survive that they can identify him. Um, or otherwise pose any sort of problem for him. So what's happening at this time in the train is only one out of every other light bulb is plugged in. And of that light bulb, its output was reduced by half. So if you add all that up together, that means inside an S-Bahn train, there's one quarter of the light that there was before the blackout. Interesting. So let's transition to his first murder. How does he commit his first murder on the S-Bahn? So his first murder was an unusual one in that it didn't, it took place in the garden area, but yet stemmed from his activities on the S-Bahn. So it didn't really fit into either of his MOs, his initial MO of hiding and scaring or attacking women in the garden area and is soon to evolve MO of attacking women on the S-Bahn. This was something new and different, a bit of a hybrid that happened by pure chance. So one night he was just standing at the train station uh, near his house when he saw a woman, Mrs. Gertrude Gerda Dieter, waiting for a train. And he went up to her and just sort of made small talk and then asked if he could visit her sometime. So you have to remember this is, uh, I mean, it's absurd, but this is long before, obviously, smartphones or all sorts of things. And so it was common at that time that if you were going to ask a woman on a date or to see her, that you could ask if you could, you know, call, make a stop by a residence. And she said, sure, and told him where he lived. And this address was in the garden colony area. And this was a time when a man like Paul, who had a good government job, was a Nazi party member in good standing and was still in Berlin, did very, very well in terms of approaching women because there were very few men for competition. And oftentimes the men that they were involved in or with were gone. So, for instance, with Gerda, she was married, but her husband was away as part of the war effort. So he visited her a few nights later. They made small talk a bit. And then this is a standard thing that he kept throughout his uh, career, I guess you'd say, as a uh, attacker. He just suddenly and abruptly switched from being a conversational sort of chill interaction to full on attack. And so he just went straight at her to try to choke her. So he put his hands around her very slender neck and he squeezed so hard that he fractured her hyoid bone, which is this sort of weird bone in your throat. And that's a dead giveaway uh, to any medical examiner that the person had been strangled. But despite the serious injury, Mrs. Dieter was still alive. Uh, Paul kept one hand on her neck to hold her steady while he took his other hand off it 
to take a knife out of his pocket and then stabbed her in the neck. And this knife cut cut her, severed her left carotid artery, and she quickly bled out. And then he left. And she had small children that were in another room in her small garden area house. And when the police showed up, it was a very, very strange situation the next day because the person to discover her body was actually from the equivalent of uh, like child welfare services. And he was there because Mrs. Dieter was considered to be a bit wild and not a fit mother. And he was actually there as an emissary of the state to take away her children from her. And so in that case, if you find a woman dead the very time you're coming to take our kids away from her, you think suicide. And he called the ordinary police, the ones that handle suicide. These are the same ones that handle minor crime and had been handling all the nearby scaring and assaults of women in the garden area, the ORPO, the ordinary police. And they show up in their green uniforms and take a look around and they very quickly realize that uh, no one commits suicide by strangling themselves and then stabbing themselves in the night in the neck. And so they pass it off to the creepo, the uh, criminal police. We will be back after a brief break. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or well, call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Serial killers. Strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the history of people drinking blood to stay young, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. In my show, The Conspirators, I take you on a journey through some of the darkest corners of history where you'll hear about the folklore, myths, and misconceptions behind some of the darkest events that ever happened. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. 
and we have returned. I know you've already talked a little bit about this, but if you could expand on it a little bit, could you explain in more detail about why he decides to escalate things from assault to cold-blooded murder? So I think there's a few factors that play into why he escalated his attacks from assaults to actually murders. And part of that is, is that he wanted to quickly incapacitate his victims. And I think there's a bit of bleed over into killing them. So, for instance, with Mrs. Dieter, he may have been wanting to strangle her to incapacitate her so he could assault her and then gone a little too far, for lack of a better word and uh, or a better expression, and killed her and experienced a rush, a rush that he didn't expect. So it's my personal belief that the entire time he was escalating from hiding and scaring women to actually assaulting them, he knew what he wanted. He knew that he wanted to actually assault women. And he'd had a number of um, experiences with very rough prostitutes um, in which he'd contracted venereal disease previously that had led him to sort of know sexually what he was looking for and what he wanted. And so I could imagine him seeing that escalation. In terms of murder, I don't think that in these early stages he had any idea that that's something that he would want or enjoy. Is more something that he was comfortable with as a means to an end, as a unfortunate byproduct of trying to incapacitate somebody. And then later, when he was on the train, it was something to be done to try to protect himself so they wouldn't be able to identify who he was. So how did his MO shift as he transitioned from attacks in the garden area to attacks on the S-Bahn? So on the S-Bahn, Paul developed an entirely new MO, an entirely new way of finding victims, attacking victims, and disposing of them. And this is highly, highly unusual. Normally serial killers have uh, just a straightforward pattern of one thing that they do and they escalate it. So if he'd stayed in the garden area and just escalated from hiding and scaring women to assaulting them to then killing them, then that would be quite standard. And that's how police, even today, are often able to catch serial killers. Um, but instead, he developed this this brand new hunting ground and brand new way of attacking women. And what this consisted of is the S-Bahn had uh, different routes, of course. And so there's one part of that. It stretched about five stations or so. And he would be taking that to and from work each night. So he knew it very well. And as a very long time employee, he knew everything about the S-Bahn which gave him a huge leg up. He's wearing his uniform. People feel safe around him. And what his new MO is, is on his way to or from work, or oftentimes while he's supposed to be at work, his work is such that he's able to basically hop a fence and disappear and nobody will notice. So what he's doing on the S-Bahn is part of his new MO is he is waiting on a platform and looking. And he's looking for a woman to be there alone. And there's two classes of compartments on the S-Bahn in Berlin. And this is really important to how he does his attack. There's the second class and there's the third class. There is 
No first class. So second class is very nice and costs more money and as such is almost always empty or near empty late at night. Even third class only has a, it has people, but not a lot of people at, you know, three in the morning. So Paul would ride around in second class and wait for a woman to come in by herself. And then he quickly see that in the, say, four to five minutes between stations that he had her alone. And at first it took him a bit of, um, you know, energy. It was a new thing. It was scary. He didn't know how to handle himself in terms of working up the courage to attack a woman there. So he might wait a couple stations. But the same thing as in his later garden attacks is he would come out uh, very abruptly, just suddenly shift from just being a person standing there to somebody attacking them. He started to use a blunt object. His goal was to quickly incapacitate the person. He had a, uh, oftentimes had a bit of iron piping or lead cable that he used. And what he would do is he would attack a woman, try to incapacitate her, and then he his intention was to try to sexually assault or molest her and then throw her dead or dying body off the train between stations. The first two times he did this, though, he found that, A, there was little to no time for any sort of uh, sexual assault, and uh, B, shockingly, both times the victims fought back against him repeatedly, and both of them managed to survive. It was quite quite crazy, but the first two victims both of them had the same experience of um, just uh, being attacked, of being incapacitated, of being able to see and perceive as they're slowly thrown off into the night and thinking that's the end, and both miraculously surviving. One of them actually landed on a pile of sand that had been uh, placed by the side of the S-Bahn for various reasons. And when the first woman went to the police and told her story, uh, they didn't believe her at all. Because uh, it was outlandish. She'd been a bit drunk. Why would somebody attack her and throw her from the train? They had no idea of the motive. There was no sexual assault. And also there was no theft, which was quite strange. But uh, Paul had zero interest in stealing from his victims. And he'd simply thrown all their belongings off the train after them. So it didn't make any sense. And then the second woman comes in and tells a similar story. So now they realize that there's there's something there. And so this is when Paulo Gorzo has now really finely tuned his MO. He knows what he's doing on the train. He knows to hit them hard so as they don't survive and fight back. And most shockingly, I think, for him is that he learns about himself that he enjoys the killing and these opening of these train doors and throwing these women's bodies out into the, the dark Berlin night, he gets a rush out of that, a big rush, and he enjoys it much more than he would if he simply stayed in the garden area and sexually assaulted women. And so that's that brings him up to full speed on this, this new MO. And while he's committing these assaults and murders, he actually is married and has a child and wife at home waiting for him. Do we know much about his family? We know a little bit. He had a wife, Gertrude, who was two and a half years older than him. And he had a son and a daughter. We know a bit about his wife because of the investigation in which we found that uh, he'd been 
a bit abusive. He was constantly jealous. If she even looked at a man, talked to a man, anything like that, he'd go into a jealous rage. Um, and as I've noticed in life, uh, oftentimes the guys that do that are the ones who are off, uh, you know, having affairs and seeing prostitutes. And in this case, much, much, much worse. Um, but we don't know very much about, um, about his home life other than that it was nothing too special and he was often gone and when he was gone he just would claim he was working late and she wouldn't know in fact she probably had slept through his activities so who was in charge of investigating these murders so there are two kinds of police that handled ordinary crime in berlin under the nazis so I'm not talking about political crime that would fall under the Gestapo or other uh, other groups. But the first one are the Orpo, which are the basically the order police. They were green uniforms. They're looking into accidents, suicides, assaults, minor crimes. So they were the ones investigating these attacks in the garden area. They were the first on the scene with uh, the murder of Mrs. Dieter in the Garden Colony area. But in terms of these Esban murders, those were much more serious affairs. And as murders and attempted murders, they were handled by the Kripo. And the person in charge was uh, police commissioner Wilhelm Karl Ledka. And he ran the serious crimes unit of the Kripo, which was basically the homicide division. And so he himself was in charge of this investigation. So that shows just how important it was from the moment they realized that they had somebody on the S-Bahn attacking women. And he's an interesting fellow, and he actually makes for a great hero for my book, which uh, I guess if that weren't the case, I wouldn't have written it. But he was lucky to have a job with the police at all. Forget about a high-ranking position in Berlin. Uh, in 1939, he still was not a party member. Before the Nazis had taken over, as part of his job, he'd actively infer- interfered with Nazi party rallies. So his job prior to 33 had been to try to keep street violence at a minimum. Uh, and this was a time when the Nazi party thugs brown shirts, uh, such as Paolo Gorzo himself, were fighting with communists and with the police and basically all these different factions. They're fighting in the streets. And when I say fighting, I'm not talking about like these riots we have here, you know, in America. I'm talking about all sorts of weapons and people dying and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so when the Nazis took over, he was on very, very thin ice. And this meant that if he failed to solve this very high-profile case, which just got higher and higher in its profile, he'd get fired. And being fired meant being sent to the front. And he had one thing going for him, which was that unlike most of his colleagues, he'd been with the police a long time. He'd been a detective a long time, and he knew what he was doing because – Many of the good detectives had been kicked out uh, or much, much worse. So if you were a Jewish detective, by now you're in a concentration camp. If you're uh, some sort of liberal, 
uh, depending on how active you are, you might be, you know, cannon fodder, you, you know, all kinds of things could happen. And then, of course, there's just the standard thing of political appointees, the people who are put into position because they are loyal party members or a relative has some power and they have no experience with handling true detective work. They have lots of experience in, you know, roughing people up, beating people up. Um, the people in the Gestapo have lots of experience with dealing with political crime, but trying to find a serial killer, um, he was the closest they had to somebody that would be able to do that. Can you talk a little bit about each of the murders he commits? Yes. Yeah, so in addition to his six attempted murders, um, two of which were those first two attacks he'd made on the S-Bahn, which he thought he'd, he'd killed these women, but he hadn't. Uh, he committed eight murders. So one of those, we already talked about that. That was Mrs. Dieter in a garden colony home. And of the other seven murders, yeah, so five were on the S-Bahn and two had been in the garden area. And the S-Bahn killings were all roughly the same. A quick, brutal attack followed by throwing the victim off the train in between stations. There were some differences in them in that... Um, Sometimes he simply waited until a woman came into his compartment and there were moments at which he took advantage of his uniform and would invite a woman to get a free upgrade to go from third class into second class, um, courtesy of him and his uniform, and then he would attack them. So there were a few things. And he also still stuck to moments of luck. If he saw an opportunity, he would he would grab it. Um the two garden murders, though, had a direct connection to the train. So, well, actually, yeah, the first one was Mrs. Dieter had a direct connection to the train, although that was not apparent from the crime scene at all. But these two other garden murders also had a connection that was uh, somewhat apparent. So one took place in the early morning, shortly after he'd killed on the Espan. So Paul hid just outside the station at the garden area and very, very late at night. And when a woman walked off the train, he repeatedly hit and killed her. And the closeness of these two attacks in terms of time and the use of the same blunt object in the attack and this attack taking place so close to an S-Bahn station eventually led the police to make a connection between the garden and the train attacks. And that's really key because these seem like the work of two different people until then. So one more garden killing occurred when Agorzo was was leaving the garden area train station on his way home, and he noticed a woman walking alone. And he then offered to walk her for her safety. So that was sort of his go-to move, using the uniform to be reassuring. But she wasn't having it. She absolutely refused. She was clearly scared. She tried to run. He caught up with her, and then he hit her repeatedly over the head with an iron bar. And he raped her as she was either dying or dead. He didn't know what, know which, and we don't know if he really cared. Uh, that's pretty gruesome. Yeah, it's a, it, it's really a gruesome story. Uh, I guess I try to focus sometimes on the part that really interests me, which is the uh, the detective work, what this world was like, what the thinking goes into these crimes. Um, but the actual sexual assaults themselves, there's something about them that's just um, – so much 
worse and messier and, and very difficult to think about or imagine in a way that a clean murder somehow somehow isn't. So what was the Nazi party's response to these serial killings? The Nazi party covered them up as best they could while at the same time making the capture of the perp a top priority. So those are two very conflicting goals. On the one hand, they need to stop this man. They need to catch this man. On the other hand, they don't want anyone who doesn't already know about this to know about it. And the Nazi state, as represented by the very top people, so Heydrich, Himmler, and Goebbels, all knew about this investigation and all weighed in. And they didn't want to alert people to the fact that a serial killer was able to kill women in the capital of Nazi Germany. The fact that they could not protect German women while their men were away fighting threatened to impact the morale of soldiers from Berlin who would want to be back home protecting their loved ones. And also, like all authoritarian states, they wanted to create the impression of being very powerful to deter people from opposing them. So any all-powerful sort of totalitarian state, that's the most important thing is that the people view them that way. And as long as they view them that way, that's the truth. And that's why they all build the same giant Albert Spears like architecture. It's very central. And this is like somebody thumbing their nose at them right in their capital. And Hitler himself spoke of this problem after the perpetrator had been caught. And he said, now we have the war. We have the blackout. Women workers make up the majority of the workforce. To mention one example, the, and I'm paraphrasing here, blackout killer, made many women afraid to leave the factory at night for fear something could happen to them. There is something monstrous. The man is fighting at the front while the woman cannot dare to go home. And so although he didn't use Paul's name, he was very clearly referring to him. And this was very important. If women were afraid to work the night shifts at the factories, then maybe they come up with some excuse why they can't. And that means that a third of the factory output is now impacted directly, which hurts Hitler's plans to conquer the world. So the stakes were very, very, very high for them. So were there assumptions made by the Nazis on who the killer might be? Yes. So Nazi ideology is an all-encompassing one. It covers, I mean, everything, really. And these days, we just think about a few key elements of it. Like, we're very aware of their uh, belief in Aryan superiority and of their hatred of uh, certain non-Aryans. And that's definitely one part of this. Um but there, there are other elements of Nazi ideology that really come into play here. And so that's that there was a strong utopian element to Nazi ideology. And now that their Third Reich had existed for a number of years, they believed that such crimes should not be happening. And or if they did, it'd be outsiders such as gypsies, foreigners or Jews would be the ones committing these crimes and the police could quickly capture the offenders. So there's, you know, very few Jews left in Berlin or gypsies and the foreigners that are there, there's basically slave labor um, by foreigners. They mean Slavic, um, Eastern peoples, Russians, Poles, etc. And they're basically slave labor who um, whose whereabouts are very tightly controlled. And so the police were looking into these things at first, checking if any of these slave laborers had been out about 
It led them in all sorts of uh, wrong directions. They also believed that crime had a strong basis in biology. So while this theory incorporated the non-Aryans already hated by the Nazis, it also included Germans who came from a background of crime, who themselves had committed a number of crime over the years and whose own ancestors had been criminals. So they believed that those sort of basically scumball Germans who are habitual criminals, they were born that way. It had nothing to do with circumstances or anything else. So that meant that they could look at suspects and they'd be looking at what that suspect's father did and what his grandfather did, etc. So the very last person that was their suspect was an Aryan who was a longtime party member in good standing with uh, no evidence of uh, hereditary uh, criminal activities. And uh, this, you know, greatly hurt them in the investigation. However, the lead detective was not a Nazi at all. He didn't believe in this garbage. And uh, so it didn't blind him, but it did hurt his investigation that everyone or else everyone else around him did and that resources were wasted uh, in such endeavors. So how did local newspapers cover the crimes? So the Minister of Propaganda, Josef Goebbels himself, ordered a news blackout. So there was very, very little coverage of these serial killings at first. Um, this is for all those morale reasons that I mentioned before. Um, however, it's really important back then and even today, if you're trying to catch somebody who some, you know, if you're trying to catch somebody and you don't have a lot to go on, you need to enlist the public's help. You know, that's why we have these things now saying, if you see something, say something. You know, we need people to be reporting, oh, I saw this guy, he did this thing. Um, if there was a lot of news coverage, all kinds of people could have come forward and mentioned that there'd been somebody who'd almost attacked them or frightened them and they'd run off or all sorts of information, right? But Goebbels didn't want that and he specifically forbade that. Eventually, as this thing progressed and as word spread, because people talk and um, eventually people in this garden area, people along this little S-Bahn route, they knew about it. They knew that there was a killer out there and he was hunting women. So eventually, Lutka was able to prevail upon Goebbels in order to get some local news coverage Um to sort of get some specific facts out there and ways for people to directly reach in if they had any information as well as um, a reward to try to encourage that. But major coverage only happened after the perpetrator was caught. Back again after these messages. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? 
<laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. And we are back for a final time. So how do investigators finally tie the murderers to Orgazo? They had a really, really hard time doing it. Uh, And they tried a lot of things. And I mean, so much just old fashioned, you know, shoe leather police work went into this. Um, Some of these things just led them astray. So, for instance, by uh, one crime scene, They'd found a uh, footprint and um, they had this whole thing. They, they did an amazing investigation. They figure out exactly what size shoe, what brand shoe this was. They knew that it was fresh and it happened around the time of the attack. They use these ration cards that everybody has to be able to figure out exactly who purchased the shoe. They track them down. They interrogate him. And it turns out that it's just a peeping Tom who happened to be in the wrong place, wrong time, stumbled upon a body in the dark and hightailed it out of there. And an important thing to remember with this this sort of work is many uh, creepo detectives, possibly most, would have simply said, hey, we've got a guy. He's good for it. Let's beat a confession out of him and we're done Um, and, you know, get the promotion and move on. But Lutka didn't work that way at all. Um, and he wanted to actually catch the killer. So they just, they put a lot of resources. So they knew his MO at this point, you know, on the S-Bahn, and that meant they needed a woman alone in the second class compartment. So first they tried using female police officers as bait. There'd be a, a woman police officer 
there'd be a man in a nearby compartment to try to race out if he could, if there was, if he was able to help. Um, and Lutka went straight to the woman in charge of all female police um, in the Reich and said, uh, I need you to, to arm these women. I need them to have firearms. They need to be able to defend themselves in this situation because backup won't be in the same place as them. And this woman refused. It was very strange. She was one of those um, feminists. We've had, not feminists, it's like an anti-feminist. We've had a few of them. Uh, there's there's one in The Handmaid's Tale. There's one in real life in the 70s where like they lead this sort of life where they're like, have an amazing career. They're in charge of all these other women. They're doing all this stuff. But at the same time, they claim an allegiance to a brand of femininity that doesn't allow women to be, say, carrying firearms. Um, so she absolutely refused on that crown. So they had, they tried it anyways, and they had a real close run in where Paul came up to a woman. And he realized, as he did, that although they were alone in the train compartment, she didn't seem afraid. Something seemed off. Um, he realized it was one of the – very, but some of the trains, it's possible to get in from another compartment. Some it wasn't. He realized there's one where you could. So he just quickly jumped off the moving train and ran. And the police went all out to try to catch him. But he knew the S-bomb better than anybody and was able to flee. So the detectives now went to what is my favorite image from this entire story is to remember this is the height of Nazi Germany. In addition to, you know, the terrible things they're doing to Jews and gypsies and other groups, they also are um, doing just, you know, they're, they're basically killing uh, any people that they know to be uh, gay or transgender, um, etc. Um, and, they are dressing up all of these detectives as women. They're cross-dressing. There's a beautiful photo in my book of these men wearing fishnet stockings with their hair done up and makeup and all this stuff. So they're now decoys on the train, and they're thinking that they're now going to turn the blackout conditions to their advantage because with a quarter of the normal lighting you have on the train, Paul won't realize that they're men until it's too late and they're able to fight back. They have the training, they have the weapons, etc. Um, that didn't work. And one reason that it might not have worked was that working for the train system as an S-Bahn employee and more importantly, being a party member in good standing of the brown shirts meant that Paul had access to all sorts of information, both officially and informally. So sometimes you would know when these sort of things were happening. And they uh, also did things where the police would simply shut down the train and search every single passenger, you know, that was on the train uh, anywhere between those, you know, those five, those five stations. But again, they don't know what they're looking for. Um, and so the police, the creepo just questioned the majority of the 5,000 S-Bahn employees after they came to the conclusion, look, came to the conclusion that the serial killer probably worked for the train. And this was tough because the creepo didn't know anything that this was linked to the garden attacks. So they didn't really have a way of sort of narrowing it down a bit. If they'd known that, it would have helped because Paul lived right by there. And the thing about all those interviews is they took them nowhere at this point because when Paul was looked at, he had an alibi. 
Because remember, these are Germans and not just Germans, these are Nazis. That means their records are meticulous. And so during the times of most of these attacks, it's documented that Paul is at work. So, you know, he's not going to be one of the people they're going to really look at. And um, eventually, though, a few things start to change. So the same night that he attacked and killed uh, a woman named Elfried Schrenke on the train, he used the same weapon to kill Ermgard Fressi on a path near the train station in the garden area. He'd followed her from the train and killed her. And they had a guy named Dr. Weinman. He was the medical examiner, in, which means he was a forensic pathologist, but he also had uh, training as a psychiatrist. And he informally advised Ludke in this matter. And so he saw a connection. He saw that a similar means of attack, a similar weapon was used. So these sort of connections are started to be made. Ludke's looking back at the garden area and the attacks there. And ultimately, the thing that brought them to just sort of start, it was like a th- unraveling um, a thread in a sweater. The very start of that unraveling was when a fellow Espan worker was brought in for an interrogation. They do it. At the end, they say this sort of closing line, you know, hey, is there anything that you'd noticed or anything you think we should look into? He says, well, there's this guy that I know, this Paul Gorzo, and I've seen him sneak out of work sometimes. He climbs the fence. He's a bit of a rough guy. It's probably nothing. I doubt he did this, but, you know, that's what I saw, right? So the police bring in Orgorzo for questioning. Yeah, so let's talk about Orgorzo's interrogation. Were there any special tactics that were used by police to coerce him into a confession? Definitely. So this was a confession that Jeff that started as just one of of many leads to be investigated. So it started very small. And as it progressed, eventually um, these sort of special tactics were used. So the first person to talk with Agorzo was Lika's partner in this case, the detective uh, George Hauser. Hauser was a true believer in the Nazi cause, and he went on to commit horrific, horrific war crimes. But he used this right from the beginning to establish a tight rapport with uh, with Paul. And so when confronted repeatedly by his co-worker statement that he'd seen uh, Gorzo ditch work, um, Gorzo eventually admitted to leaving work by climbing the fence. So throughout this entire investigation, from beginning to end, um, Paul Gorzo had the same approach. He would only admit to what he needed to admit to. When he felt that he needed to admit to something to appear to be honest, he would do so. And then in doing so, he'd try to have some innocuous explanation. So this whole thing was a series of him being presented with things him trying to deny it him being presented with some sort of evidence and making a minimal confession. And so it goes. So at this point, this is nothing. And when asked why he did this, what he was doing, he said, well, I was having an affair with this woman. Her husband's away at the war. It's frowned upon. I didn't want people to know, right? So the police go out. They find this woman. The story checks out. So at least this one, you know, at least during the time that this coworker had seen him hop the fence, this is what he was doing. And there was one thing left, though, is during the interrogation, the police had uh, taken his uniform for investigation, for examination, 
and uh, a rush examination by a lab. This is very standard. It didn't mean there's something special about him. And they discovered blood. There's also the way in which the blood happened was, was sort of interesting, too, for them. So at first they just tell him, hey, there's blood. And he has a couple explanations. Oh, I cut my finger. My wife had been sick or something and bled a little. They bring the wife in. She she says that, yes, that's what happened. But the this the nature of this blood didn't fit this. Where the blood was, it was blood splatter. It didn't work at all. So that, you know, now they're really intrigued. And so then there's sort of then their next question is, well, you know, how do you get back and forth from home each night? And he said, you know, he, he says, well, I took the S-Bahn home. I often walked to the, to this garden area to his apartment building. There was another route or two he could have taken. And he admits that he had a bicycle he sometimes took that had a light. And they keep pushing in and they're trying to get him to admit to just very, very small things. So eventually he's admitting to just really low level. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's like anybody would do, you know, kind of things. You know, they're really establishing this rapport. And this is the same exact thing detectives do now. You can see this on any episode of Law and Order SVU where they pretend to, uh, you know, they're in the same wavelength as some scumbag and get him to admit some small thing that's a very minor infraction. So he admits to scaring women with a light or yelling at them. And, you know, this is this is a nothing offense, you know. So the police then take him during the daylight to this garden area. And there they do a um, sort of a surprise identification. They have two women and he's not expecting to see them, and they identify him. And it's not the best identification in the world. I mean, in the U.S., that wouldn't even be uh, that wouldn't be allowed into evidence. But the main idea is not corroboration, not for them to say, "Hey, we've got the right guy." The main idea is just to throw him off his balance, to scare him, make him flip out. And as part of that, they then have him lead them around this garden area to some of the places where he scared women. And he's so confused and so frazzled that he's accidentally taking them to some locations where he committed much more serious offenses. And so they bring him back to the station, and he now knows he's in some pretty serious trouble. And he says that um, he needs to talk to the man in charge of the serious crimes unit. He needs to talk to somebody very high up. Uh, the head of this investigation. He doesn't know his name, but it's Lutka. And he wants to talk with him directly. Interesting. So Ludka comes in and handles the rest of the investigation then? Yes. So now this is now a mano a mano sort of thing. It's just like in a Bergman movie when a knight is playing death at a game of chess with the stakes being, well, life or death. And so Lutka comes in, he's already got, you know, a little bit of information established, and he has a few props. He has the skulls of five of Agorzo's victims sitting on a table. Dr. Vyman had previously cleaned them, so they're bleached white. Each one has a decent-sized hole in it from where it had been struck by a heavy blunt object. And Lutka kept the room darkened, but had a bright light on it, so it illuminated this macabre exhibit. Lutka was just a genius. Even that... uh I mean, I can't picture a, a modern investigator even say like the woman in the clothes are coming up with something that good. It just it just worked so well. And they just sit there in silence and look and knows to let the silence drag on. Ordinary people, people like you and me, 
when we want information, we talk, we ask questions, we engage. But people who really know what they're doing, they know how to drag out that silence and just make it so the other person is so uncomfortable that they just start to say stuff and they just keep saying stuff. So suddenly, Paul pleads with him and says, you, you got to help me. And he says, I'm, I'm a loyal party member. I'm a uh, senior squad leader in Obersheffeter in the um, brown shirts. And uh, sorry about my pronunciation if it's not right on. And so now they're playing a game. So Lucca is manipulating Orgozo's pleas as a way to obtain the confession. So it's just the same as when modern day police pretend to sympathize with a suspect to elicit the suspect's version of events. So did Lucca take advantage of this opening that Orgozo had given him? He told Orgozo that they could, but before they could figure out what could be done to help him, Lucca needed to know exactly what he had done. So now this is a game of cat and mouse where Gozo is admitting to the minimum he thinks he absolutely has to with the evidence right in front of him while asking for mercy. So of Gorzo's only hope here, his game that he's playing, he realizes that if he just says nothing, he's pretty much toast at this point with all the evidence they have against him. But if he were certain that Lucka wasn't going to help him, then he would just shut up, right? Because at least then maybe there's a little bit of a chance. But he's thinking, you know, I don't know if like it's going to help me, but maybe, maybe he will. And so maybe I do have to put the cards on the table and say, hey, this is what I did. This is why I did it. Can we work something out? Right. And so Lucka finally, step by step, takes him through every sort of thing. So. So, of course, it will try to, to minimize it. Oh, yeah, I didn't, you know, mean I came there, you know, I, I did this, I did that. And also, of course, it was really clever. He has one more trick up his sleeve. While confessing to the minimum he needs to confess to, he does it so it actually contradicts the evidence so that later if it's used against him, he could say it's clearly not that. Right. So he's saying I killed him this way when he killed him that way. So first he admits to attacking them, but says, I didn't intend to kill them. And then he says, well, I did, but I used this weapon. And then Aguerzo is confronted by, say, the skull and the object he used to hit them with and said, well, it couldn't have been that way. So finally, in the end, after this, this intense moment between them, Dukka has everything. He has the entire truth. And he has a Corso write down a confession. So he says, write down everything you did and you could, you know, put in all these reasons you explained for why we should try to work something out, how you're a loyal party member and all this sort of stuff. So then Orgozo uses a tactic that probably doesn't surprise anyone familiar with Nazi ideology. He tries to blame a Jewish doctor for his actions. Correct. Correct. He did. Uh, it's in his confession, he wrote, and this is uh, yeah, directly translated from the German. A few years ago, I had sex with a stripper and then went to a Jewish doctor. The Jew who knew that I was a party member has, out of hatred of the Nazis, mistreated my gonorrhea, the consequence of which affected my state of mind. I would like this considered for sentencing purposes. Therefore, I am not responsible for my actions. And did the, did the Nazis consider that? Well, the, the uh, <laughs> considered might not be the right word. It was uh, brought up um, at his trial, but, you know, just carded immediately, perhaps with laughter. I don't know if the, 
Nazis were particularly known for that, but uh, it was immediately brought up and got, you know, just thrown away. But there was the defense. So the only defense that he has left at this point, really, now that everything's out there and uh, he's been hoping to make some sort of, you know, deal as a party member before it went out there. But basically what he has now as a defense is uh, mental incapacity. So he has, you know, I have mental incapacity. It's because of this thing that happened with this, this Jewish doctor. It's also because um, I've had all these sort of headaches and other problems. And so an expert, um, Dr. Fieher von Merenholtz, he examined Agorzo. And he determined that these health problems that uh, Paula complained of, headaches, sexually transmitted diseases, associated treatment, none of these would explain away his attacks on women. And I have to say, um, any modern expert would agree with him. Of course, just being a Nazi court, I, you know, doubt it was a very unbiased examination. And even if he'd had some issues, um, you know, who knows if he would have gotten a fair shake. But, but anybody would agree with that. I'd say a big, big difference, though, is that um, today we tend to think we tend to think about mitigating circumstances, sort of stuff, the things that impact sentencing. It really gets down into this real digging into the details of a person's life. So now if you have a death penalty case here in the U.S., the first thing is you're convicted, then they go to the sentencing thing and it becomes a very expensive. You know, oftentimes these things will cost a million dollars even. You know, oh, when he was five, his father beat him in a certain way. When he was seven, he saw this thing. You know, he experienced this. And then you have an expert explain what that means. None of them cared in the slightest what happened to him in his upbringing. It, he didn't even think of that as a defense. It just wasn't the way that they thought. Um, all that he had left was basically character witnesses. His wife saying, well, he was, you know, a good father and husband other than this whole, you know, jealousy thing. And uh, him saying that he was a loyal party member. Right. So how many crimes was he ultimately charged with? So he was charged for 14 independent acts and serious acts of violence, namely eight murders and six attempted murders by dangerous means. These happened in the years 1939 to 1941 in Berlin. So his sexual assaults uh, were not included in here. Those were very serious crimes. It, the Nazis took them seriously as well within the context of somebody attacking, of course, uh, Aryan women in good standing. But just as would happen now, you, you go with the, the if somebody's committed a whole variety of offenses, you just hit them with the main ones that you have well documented and it will get you the punishment that uh, you are looking for. And how did the court proceed against him? Can you talk a little bit about the trial? Yes. So he was tried by what was known as the Berlin Special Court. Um, the idea of the special courts was to try political offenses as opposed to purely ordinary criminal offenses. It was inspired by the brutal efficiency of military court martials. These courts were to proceed quickly without the use of, of juries. So with military court martials, I mean, it's, you know, it's been a while, but picture you're at the front you know, say World War II, you know, something like that. And all of a sudden you find out somebody's committed some sort of political offense. They've tried to desert, they badmouth the fear, you know, they're communist, whatever. You just pull up a few officers, you have a really quick proceeding. And, you know, at the end of it, you shoot the guy. 
and there's no appeals. And so that's basically what the Nazis set forth for political crimes. And you might be thinking right now, like, hey, this is an ordinary crime. He's it's a horrific one, but a serial killer is not political. However, the fact that he had taken advantage of the blackout for his crimes made them political because anything whatsoever that impacted people feeling safe during the blackout and then being willing to fully implement the blackout threatened Berlin's ability to keep itself safe from aerial bombardment by the British. So if people walking down the street are scared to walk at night, then maybe they don't work at the factory. Maybe they carry a little flashlight, even though they shouldn't, et cetera, et cetera. So what that meant is, is that even a purse snatching at night carry the death penalty. So if you do the same purse snatching during the day, it's a minor felony, maybe a few months in jail or hard labor, something like that. You snatch a purse at night. Even if you're a kid, there's, you know, right before this, there's a trial as an adolescent executed. And so the attorney general of the court of justice as the prosecutor at the special court indicted Paul Gorzo on July 23rd, 1941. Where was the trial held and how long did it last? So the next day, July 24th, his trial was held at the special court three or the, the third special court of the Berlin regional court. It lasted only about six hours and the judgment came that same day. Uh, an expert testified that he was mentally fit, as I mentioned before, and step by step, the court tore apart his attempts to use mental capacity defense. Um, just like a prosecutor would do today, the prosecutor in his case drilled down into the details of the crime to show the elaborate forethought and planning that went into it and how the accused was careful to avoid being caught. So that's the same thing you would do today. So if somebody today says, hey, this guy was so crazy, he thought that a dog was telling him to go out and, and murder prostitutes. Then you say, well, if he's so crazy, then how come he was very careful to only do this crime when there were no witnesses? How come the one time he saw a cop, he did this? How come he had the evidence? So it's sort of drilling down into that. And that's the exact same thing that would be done today. And then there was a technical argument about applying the current laws to his crimes that had occurred before it was passed. So um, the court didn't care at all about this. Um, in the European or American court, that would matter very, very much. We have a thing in the Constitution that means that, um, you know, you can't apply retroactively criminal laws. So, for instance, if we abolish the statute of limitation for sexual assault in California, you couldn't retroactively um, indict Bill Cosby for assaults that he'd allegedly committed in the 70s. But in the end, the only thing he was left with was goodwill based on his being a party member and his, his wife speaking up for him. But that didn't help, did it? Uh, no, it, it didn't help at all. Uh, the court convicted him of all the charges against him. The special court sentenced him to death and ruled that he now had no civil or political rights. The judges did not care that he could passed as a party member or that he was an SA man. Uh, the SA were the brown shirts, nor that he blamed his crimes on a Jewish doctor mistreated him. Even in the Third Reich, the excuse that a Jew made him did it did not absolve his many sins. The head of the court stated that he was, quote, a beast in human form, deservedly eliminated from the national community. And there were no appeals from this kind of court. 
So the next morning at 6 a.m. on Friday, July 25th, 1941, the Third Reich executed Paolo Corso. It had been only 13 days since his initial arrest. That's that's efficient. The Nazis were definitely efficient. That was uh, one thing that could be said for them. So how was he executed? So the execution took place at the notorious Plattensee prison in Berlin. So during the Nazi reign of terror, this huge brick structure was a temporary home to many prisoners on the way to the executioner. And this is all kinds of prisoners, ordinary criminals to political criminals, um, including many of the Germans who took part in the July 1940 plot against Hitler. So um, he was killed along with four other prisoners that day. Uh, three were political. One had killed his wife. And all of them were killed by the guillotine. And the Chicago Daily Tribune reported on the execution that morning with the rhyming headline of three Nazi traitors and two slayers die on guillotine. It described Gorzo as, quote, one of the most notorious mass murderers of recent times in Europe. For two years, he is said to have terrorized passengers on late elevated trains operating in the outer suburbs, attacking women in empty compartments and disposing of his victims by pushing them out of the moving train. I also wanted to ask you about police commissioner Ludko. Can you tell us what happens to him after this case is done and things have settled? Well, this case basically made his career. So before he'd been on very thin ice, and the Nazis realized that he was not one of them. He was not a uh, loyal uh, party member in any way, shape, or form. But this case also made them realize that it was important to have somebody who knew what he was doing there. So he rose up in the ranks in the Berlin uh, Kripo. And he never had, he was never drafted into military service, although eventually, as part of a reorganization, he was forced into being a member of the SS and was given a SS uh, rank and uniform. Um, so basically he was at Berlin until the bitter end doing these same sort of cases, these ordinary crimes, these murder cases. And after the war, he was picked up because he was, um, I guess, uh, stupid enough or unfortunate enough to still be wearing his SS uniform, and the Russians didn't really understand the uh, complicated nature of uh, uniforms for German detectives. So the uh, the Soviets held him for a while. Um, he was then let go, and he, he stayed in Berlin, but he wasn't able to rejoin the um, Berlin police force. Uh, however, he then became a spy for the CIA, and he worked for the CIA to try to uh, help fight the uh, Soviets with their own espionage efforts uh, in Eastern Europe and Germany. That's absolutely fascinating. So where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, well, I go by my full name, Scott Andrew Selby. So you could just go ahead and, uh, you know, go on Amazon, um, you know, Barnes & Noble generally has a couple of my books, uh, smaller bookstores. You'd have to special order it. Um, and, yeah, and I ha as you mentioned in the intro, I have three books, one about a, a diamond robbery of $500 million worth of diamonds, one about a conspiracy with the adult leadership of the Hitler Youth at the end of the war and then after the war. And then uh, this one we talked about, a serial killer in Nazi Berlin. And, yeah, they're all available online. And if you found this story interesting, hopefully you'll find those interesting as well. Well, thanks again for your time. 
Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciated it. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and as always, I wish you a safe tomorrow. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.